This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Brad Feld sold his Boston startup and moved to Boulder, Colorado in 1995. The city already had a bustling entrepreneurial community, and Feld was soon in the thick of things. He co-founded Mobius Venture Capital and, earlier, Intensity Ventures, a company that helped launch software companies. More recently, he co-founded two early-stage venture capital firms, the Foundry Group and Techstars, which provide seed funding and angel investors. A startup community has to tap its natural resources, he says. They may be physical, intellectual, or cultural, and the combination is unique, he says in this Knowledge at Wharton interview. Well, Brad, thank you so much for speaking to Knowledge at Wharton. My pleasure for being here. Thanks for inviting me. So you live in Boulder, Colorado. What does Boulder have in common with Silicon Valley? Boulder is a, a great example of a place that has a very high concentration of startup activity, where many of the people in the community are involved in startup and startup company creation. That startup community, the density of it and the density of the activity causes there to be really interesting things to happen all the time. You kind of can't avoid it. In the same way that in Silicon Valley, there's this incredible density of startup activity. Now, Boulder is much smaller. It's 100,000 people. I like to joke when I go to a big city in downtown San Francisco, there's probably a single building that my whole, the whole city of Boulder fits in. And that's powerful because it's, it's, small enough where you can get your mind around it, but yet it's big enough where there's some critical mass and you can actually understand the dynamics of what's happening. So I've used it as a laboratory for understanding how startup communities get created rather than trying to dissect these very, very large startup communities and figure out what was actually happening there. But coming back to the parallel with Silicon Valley, you know, a number of places have tried to replicate the Silicon Valley model as, as a hub of entrepreneurship. Uh, how, how, did, how did Boulder succeed and how did that process work out? Well, part of Boulder's success was deliberately not trying to emulate Silicon Valley. And in fact, I think one of the most powerful things for any city that's trying to create a startup community or an entrepreneurial ecosystem that's vibrant, the first thing they should do is get rid of the idea that they're trying to be like Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley has unique characteristics just like every city does. And the city and the community should focus on their unique characteristics. They should learn from some of the things that are powerful about what has caused Silicon Valley to be such an extraordinary entrepreneurial ecosystem. But they shouldn't try to emulate it. Um, One of the examples of that is if you look at Silicon Valley, it's been developing as a startup community for over 60, 70 years. This notion that you can create something in two, three, five years is foolish. And so recognizing that it takes a long time, you have to go on that kind of a journey. And there's a long list of the kinds of strengths, but Silicon Valley has some weaknesses too. And it's important to understand the dynamics between that and how that applies to your own city rather than simply trying to be like it. So how did the uh, startup scene in Boulder evolve, and what were the main driving factors? So uh, there are four specific things that, when I look at the Boulder startup community, have really caused it to grow and develop. I moved to Boulder in 1995. 
the Boulder Startup community existed before that. There was always plenty of entrepreneurial activity in the region from storage and large technology companies like IBM and HP. So I can speak from the experience from 95 through today. When I looked when I started thinking hard about this in about 2010 and looking backwards, what I realized was that the four principles were very simple. One is that the entirety of the activity was led by entrepreneurs. So the startup community was fundamentally driven by entrepreneurs. Second, they had this long-term view, so it played out over a long period of time. And when I look at the leaders, it wasn't that people selected the leaders. There wasn't a, an election. It was just entrepreneurs who were doing what entrepreneurs do, which is create things. And when I look back to 95, maybe there were 10 or a dozen people that I could point at today that were in that leadership role. Today, there's probably 100. So it builds over time, and it, it, it continues to accumulate. The third principle is uh, that everyone is inclusive of anyone who wants to engage to any level. So there's this notion that it's not a zero-sum game. You're not playing for winners and losers. The startup community is such a small part of the fabric of most cities that if you want to think about it as a market share game, you're getting market share against other things. And frankly, if the city's growing, it doesn't even matter if you gain market share because it continues to expand. So this notion of inclusiveness and, and non-zero-sum game approach is important. And then the last is that you have to have this continuum of activities and events that engage the entire entrepreneurial stack. Things that get first-time entrepreneurs together with ex experienced entrepreneurs and investors and aspiring entrepreneurs and people working in startups that want to learn about entrepreneurship and people in big companies that want to work with startups. It can't be that you have an Entrepreneur of the Year award. It can't be that you have a cocktail party where you just network. You actually have to do stuff where, you're, and where that stuff is the company creation process. So things like an accelerator like Techstars where you have a concentrated effort around creating companies for 90 days, or startup weekends where you have 54 hours of simulation of entrepreneurship where people who want to experience it can. Now, so based on what you said, it sounds like entrepreneurship cannot be imposed from the top uh, by a sort of a top-down cluster, uh, but it needs to sort of bubble up from the bottom. Is that is that accurate? Very accurate. And uh, one way to think about it is, is the collision between networks and hierarchies. So if you think – I separate the world of startup communities into two constituencies, leaders and feeders. So the leaders are entrepreneurs and the feeders are everyone else. And the feeders have a really important role, but they have a different style and dynamic. So you know, government, academia, big companies, venture capitalists – um, service providers, the lawyers and accountants. These are all in the feeder category. Many of the feeder organizations are hierarchies. You know, there's a boss and there's a hierarchy from wherever the person is that's doing economic development, nonprofits around economic development. Entrepreneurs, most of their companies, yeah, they have some hierarchy as they grow, but they're networks. They're these messy, sloppy, organic things. And the startup community is a network where really power is not a given or appointed. It's a node. You're, each person is a node on that network, and the more they contribute and the more they intersect, the more powerful that node becomes. The challenge of most hierarchies is they don't know how to deal with a network, and the challenge of most networks is they get frustrated when they intersect with the hierarchy. Any entrepreneur knows how frustrating it is to try to work through a big government or a big company. And so the, the magic is to figure out how to get participants in the hierarchical companies in the hierarchical organization. So instead of thinking of it as anthropomorphizing government, 
take a person in government who is motivated to be part of the startup community and make them a node on the network. So you intersect this notion of hierarchies and the networks. The other point that's so important there is that hierarchies fundamentally want to control things. Right? You want to impose structure. You want to impose measurement. You want to impose the way that things happen. And that's just not how entrepreneurship works at the beginning. And that's not how a startup community evolves. So the efforts to have these planned startup communities or to have these clusters that are organized and managed by some function of government doesn't work for a number of reasons, including time horizon. It, if you think that it takes two or three years to create a company, it's foolish. It takes 20 years to create a company, 10 years. I mean, you know, sure, every now and then something emerges and in two or three years gets bought for a billion dollars by somebody. But that's the edge case. Most companies are 5, 10, 15, 20-year builds. The startup community needs that kind of 20-year time horizon. Most of the feeder organizations function differently. University functions in a one-year time horizon. And I like to joke that they have summer off. Right? Government uh, functions in two- to four-year rhythms with an election year. So really they're functioning for one to three years, not 20. Big business, quarterly, annual rhythms. So you have to be able to transcend all of the ups and downs in the shorter-term measurement when you're building the startup community. So what's the right way then for leaders to work with feeders? There's a lot of different ways. And I actually think that uh, the most powerful thing is for feeders to figure out how to work with the leaders, which is, again, bottom up, right? <laughs> right. So right, right. the leaders, and I'm a venture capitalist, so I like to say my job is, is to help and support the entrepreneurs. I can play a leadership role, but my organization can't be the leader. And so within these feeder organizations, individuals who want to play leadership roles can, and they become part of the fabric of the startup community and part of the leadership, even if they're part of a feeder organization. Learning how to do that, learning how to have a longer time horizon, learning how to engage without near-term measurements to justify your activity is super important. The other thing that's the opposite side of the coin is that the entrepreneurs have to be inclusive of those people who want to participate. So this notion of inclusiveness is critical because if the entrepreneurs say, oh, that person's from government, they can't be helpful, you're missing out on a huge opportunity. Or if a person says, well, that big company once wasn't a good actor, well, that's okay. The big company, forget about the big company, find the individual people who can engage and be that linkage on the network back to the big company. One thing I find very interesting is whether you look at Silicon Valley on the West Coast or Silicon Alley in New York, uh, a lot of startups tend to be started by immigrant entrepreneurs. And, and, and this is understandable because immigrants have a, a high tolerance of risk. Uh, without that, they wouldn't leave home. Yep. Uh, do you think that the immigration policy as it exists today helps or hinders startups and entrepreneurship? Uh, I think the U.S. immigration policy is a huge hindrance of startups in the United States. Um, I'm one of the original creators of the startup visa movement dating back to 2009. And that came out of uh, frustration that a number of us had as entrepreneurs and investors where we literally were in a position where we had great entrepreneurs that we wanted to invest in who wanted to start their companies in the U.S., and literally could not navigate the visa process to get a visa to be able to start their companies. And, you know, these were Canadians, Europeans, right? It was all, you know, obviously people from Asia as well. But any – when you sort of dug into it, what you realized was how brain dead our immigration process was. 
There's a second problem, which is that we have these immigration policies where we encourage people to come to school here, to get educated here. We give them visas for that, but then they can't start a company. They can't leave school and literally get an appropriate visa to start a company. So it's been a real uh, hindrance. And I think it's, it's uh, accelerated in, as a problem because uh, in, innovation is no longer uh, constrained. Um, you know, with the, the web and the internet and things like this, the ability for people to be educated anywhere in the world, to be able to understand the dynamics of creating companies, all of a sudden say, I'm not going to put up with that brain damage in the U.S. I'm going to go back to wherever I grew up and I'm going to start a company there. And you're seeing very, very, very vibrant startup communities all over the world in, you know, likely places, you know, like uh, India and China, but unlikely places like Iceland. And These startup communities are incredibly vibrant. And the fact that the U.S. continues to have this block on some of the most innovative participants in our society is ridiculous. So internationally, where are some of the uh, most supportive environments for uh, uh, building entrepreneurial hubs? Well, I've stumbled into some really interesting places, you know, in in the work around startup communities. One that I talk about in the book is Iceland. Uh, and a number of entrepreneurs in Iceland who after the financial crisis when the country literally imploded and went financially bankrupt um, have basically just restarted this uh, creation process out of nothing but out of nothing where they just said, well, let's go. Um, And as a result, there's significant numbers of companies getting created. There was an acquisition of a technology company yesterday by a U.S. company. So you're seeing real things happening versus just the talk around it. Um, Another place which surprised me uh, around entrepreneurial activity is the U.K. Um, And there's a couple of things that are happening in the U.K. And this is a good example of how government can be very effective uh, in the context of this is there's an area of the, of, of the UK now called Tech City where there's this incredible density of startup activities, again, being led and driven by entrepreneurs, but the government is shining a bright light on it and, and helping people understand the dynamics around it. In the UK, they have a startup visa, uh, and they're being very aggressive about enabling that visa to be used for immigrant entrepreneurs so that uh, – in addition to having, you know, the immigration policy dynamics, they allow programs like Techstars, which we now have a London program. If you get accepted, you automatically get a visa. So trying to encourage and focus and concentrate this entrepreneurial activity. So speaking about Techstars, can you tell me a little bit about uh, how you support entrepreneurship, not just in Boulder, but also in other cities? Sure. Techstars got started in uh, 2006. Uh, there were four four founders, myself, uh, David Cohen, who's the CEO, uh, a guy named David Brown, who was David's partner in his previous business, and Jared Polis, who's now uh, a congressman for us in Colorado, but at the time was a multi-time successful entrepreneur. Uh, our initial premise was that we wanted to try to create something in Boulder as an experiment to see if we could knit together the startup community, get more people in the startup community – Um, and get more startups launched uh, that had the engagement of the local community. So uh, we had phenomenal experience with it in Boulder over a number of years and then started expanding geographically. And the the functional way we do it is that there's roughly 10 companies per 90-day program, three-month program. We fund them with $120,000. So they don't pay us. We pay them. We take some equity in their company in exchange, uh, usually about 6%. 
And then the community acts as mentors. So entrepreneurs and service providers and investors in the community work intensely with these companies to help them accelerate their process. We've expanded to Boston and instead of making it a closed thing that we tried to control, we turned it around and made it of the city, of the community. So the investors in Techstars Boston include us, but also includes many of the angel and venture investors in Boston. So anyone that wanted to invest in it could. And the idea is that it gave everybody a stake in the outcome. The mentors were local. As we expanded to other cities like Seattle, play that kind of cycle again, where the Seattle investors uh, are uh, angel investors and successful entrepreneurs and the local venture community. We've now got Techstars programs running in 10 cities. We have about 100 companies a year going through Techstars. We've expanded you know, in New York, Boston, Seattle, uh, San Antonio, where we have a program called Techstars Cloud aimed at cloud computing companies, Chicago, and London. We're also now finding it's a very powerful way to engage large companies in building ecosystems around their products. So there's something called the Nike Accelerator in Portland. So instead of having a Portland program, there's a program with Nike, which is a very big, obviously, company based in Portland. And the startup community is supporting that as well as people in the vertical market that Nike's going after. Uh, so you referred earlier on about each city having its own unique uh, environment. Uh, and I think uh, the Dexa pro program probably gives you a great vantage point to see yep. the differences. What are some of the most interesting lessons you have learned? So, so I describe the, the, the label I put to, to describe the unique characteristics are natural resources. And I use natural resources because most cities got created because of some physical natural resource, right? They were at the intersection of a river or fertile land or a mountain or something, like caused people to say, we're going to build a city here. Sometimes people just got tired of traveling from one place to another. But there was some natural resources. Over the last 100 or 200 years, most cities have developed unique physical and intellectual and cultural resources. This is the natural resources that I talk about. So here, Penn is a natural resource of Philadelphia. The historical context of the city is a natural resource of Philadelphia. There's a bunch of other things that are natural resources, including, for example, Comcast, which is a very big technology company that is based here. Right? So you take these natural resources, which cover lots of different things, you can't organize and structure it top down. But the entrepreneurs that are attracted to the city are attracted because of the natural resources or they build their businesses around those natural resources. So if you go to New York, you see an awful lot of companies that are doing things in digital media, around media, around fashion, around commerce, around banking, taking advantage of the natural resources of New York and New York City, which includes the intellectual natural resources that comes from the population base. Every city has natural resources. And the key is, as entrepreneurs, when you're starting to build this development around, you're starting to think about trying to expand the startup community, make sure you're taking advantage of them. The mistake I've seen in so many places is that they ignore what's special and magical about the city. And they say, well, we've just got to do these things, boom, 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 boom. Actually, you want the magical stuff to come to the surface because that attracts new people to the city. It causes people to stay in the city. It gives people an understanding of it. And the punchline for all of that is in Miami uh, the other day, and they were talking about how to brand the startup community activity in Miami. And I said, you already have a brand. It's called Miami. 
Like somebody says Miami, they know what Miami means. Like don't create a new brand. Just use the brand of the city that you're in, the place that you're in to help people understand why it's magical and special. So let me ask one last question. And that is if, if let's say Miami wants to enhance its own entrepreneurial ecosystem, uh, what advice would you give its leaders? Uh, I would give the leaders uh, four pieces of advice. Uh, the first is that You've got to make sure that there's a critical mass of entrepreneurs who are the leaders. And you don't need a hundred. You need a half a dozen. But you can't do it with one person or two people. You don't get elected. Nobody gets appointed. It has to be organic. But there has to be a critical mass. The second is that those leaders have to commit to a long-term journey. They have to be in it for 20 years. And I like to say that I've been in Boulder 17 years. And I'm not 17 years into a 20-year journey. I'm 17 years into a 37-year journey. You just have to have a long lens. The third is that you have to be inclusive of anyone who wants to engage at any level. And sure, every now and then you'll bump into a bad actor somewhere. The, the startup community is very efficient at either modifying the behavior of the bad actor or rejecting the bad actor without anybody having to pay much attention to it. And the last is create this activity around the startups that engage everyone and do it. A lot of entrepreneurs say, I don't have time. I'm too busy running my company. Do things that enhance your company. An example of that that I'll, I'll end on is entrepreneur says, I'm having a really hard time. I have no time. I'm too busy trying to recruit iOS developers. I can't find enough iOS developers and I can't spend time on my startup community because I need to develop, I need to find more iOS developers. Start a monthly tech meetup for iOS developers. Have it in your office. Serve beer and pizza. Within a year, you'll have all the iOS developers in the city in your office every month. And all of a sudden, you'll be that center point, and the ability to recruit them will be that much easier. Brad, thank you so much for speaking with Knowledge at Wharton. Thanks for having me. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.